Welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully. This is a podcast to elevate teacher voice. In this program, you will hear teachers sharing their journey into this profession and their ideas for education. This is about honest, vulnerable, inspiring storytelling. It's a time and a space for teachers to share their ideas for the future of education. Teachers are beautiful beings who give their heart and soul to their community. They're innovators. They're inspirational, not only to children, but to the people around them and they deserve to share their voice. So welcome to The Teacher's Story. Enjoy. Hi, welcome to The Teacher's Story. I'm Jackie Scully, and today we have Kristen Norrie with us. I'm so excited because I met Kristen through Cindy Cohen in the More Joy community. And also Kristen has collaborated with Christine Jones, who's been on the show with Cindy. And I'm hoping to bring both of them back on in season four. So I'm so excited to have Kristen with us today. Kristen's the founder of Inclusion Advocates and Allies, LLC. She's helping parents navigate the 504 and IEP process. And if you don't know that terminology, we'll be talking about it today. It's very much teacher speak. Uh, Also behavioral specialist, national professional development specialist. So lots of background in special education. And so this could be a very helpful um, episode, especially those parents that have students, have children who are in the special education um, area. So thank you, Kristen, for being here. Thank you for having me. I very much appreciate it. I'm excited to have this conversation. Me too. Um, And I I've not been a special education teacher or in that field, but I have lots of friends that have been. And when I taught in Hawaii, I had very close friends in special education and kudos, big, big work, important work. And then even more so what you're doing to help families, I think is so critical. And I think they're going to gain a lot from your expertise today. So my my first question for you is, What even inspired you to look into education or particularly special education? So it's, it's kind of a funny story. My father is an educator. Um, So I grew up in a home with a father who taught high school English. And then about halfway through his career, he got his administration certification and became a principal. At one point there, I lived in a very large community outside of Washington, D.C., and he still ended up at my school at one point. So he was my assistant principal for a year. Oh, wow. Um, but I, everyone always said, you're going to be a teacher. You're going to be a teacher. And I always said, I'm going to be a teacher. From the time I can remember, my three best friends growing up and I, the four of us used to play school every day in the basement. We had a whole setup and, you know, we would, we would talk about it constantly. Ironically, all four of us have become educators. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm the only one that went down the special education route. And the reason for that, um, I really pushed back on becoming a teacher because I didn't want to do it just because I was expected to. And Mm -hmm. so I originally was really interested in hearing and speech sciences and teaching children of the deaf. Um, And I decided I was going to do my undergrad in um, hearing and speech sciences, which way more science-based than I was prepared for. And it was a really tough um, group of professors, to be quite honest, at the university where I was. And my advisor said, well, have you ever thought about special ed? Because you can do a concentration in hearing and speech sciences. And I was like, oh, 
no, that never occurred to me. So that's why I ended up going into special education as opposed to just general education. Um, but when I decided to do that, I was like, wait, what am I doing? I've never thought about this before. I just kind of jumped in. Mm -hmm. um, in hindsight, I now know, you know, a lot about special education that a lot of people in my life growing up had special needs that I didn't know about, including my, my high school boyfriend of three, three mm -hmm. years. I mean, I used to, I didn't even realize at the time, but I was his advocate. His mom, you know, was a young mom when she had him. And so she worked constantly and his teachers would chase me down, you know, and, and talk to me about things he hadn't turned in or his IEP and, you know, meetings that were coming up. So that's how I first, first got my toe in it. And I enjoyed it, but I didn't really think about it as a job. Like it just never crossed my mind um, until I, you know, had that professor say that. So I did major in my undergrad program, special education, and I ended up going multi-handicapped. And I know that language is very outdated, but that's what my degree says. It would now be what is considered to be um, severe, profound multi-disability. So mm -hmm. just to, basically, I, I'm trained to do, deal with a range of disabilities from mild to severe. Mm -hmm. um, and then I have a hearing and speech science uh, concentration, and then also a pre-K add-on certification just to be able to work in the pre-K area as well. So I did all of that in my undergrad program with Ohio, um, Ohio University and graduated and became a resource teacher. And when I started, I was in a very litigious area, um, very, very demanding parent. Um, you know, the kids were very, you know, had disabilities for sure, had needs, but were very strong compared to what I had been used to working with. Um, so all of a sudden I'm in this, you know, very entitled community where they were going to succeed because their, their parents were going to make sure that happened no matter what. But it just didn't feel to me like I was making a big difference. Um, and I was always being pulled for my kids to go to court for private school kids that didn't come to mm. our school. So with that said, I made the decision to go back and get my general ed certification as a master's program. And so I went to Johns Hopkins had a cohort with my school district. And um, a lot of the principals and administrators from my school district taught classes, including my father at Hopkins in their educational programs. And I enjoyed that because it really lent to where I was teaching to let me learn the lingo of, of the general ed side of things. But what I discovered is that general ed teachers don't get any special ed training. No. You know, it was a, a wake up call to me. The only course we got was a special ed 101. And the teacher said to me, you could teach this class. I mean, she mm -hmm. would every week say, and, and you know, what do you think, Kristen? I used to joke, I'm paying Hopkins for me to teach this class for them. <laughs> but, uh, you know, at the same time, it was, you know, scary that that's all they got and it was wow. theory you know theory-based stuff and information about disabilities but not what, what to do and how to practically support in the classroom or any of that so that was a, a huge wake-up call to me and and you know my that's the first alarm bells went off but I was still in my late 20s and you know didn't really think long term at that point in terms of you know where things would lead um tell me if I'm rambling too much. I know I, I can get talking and just keep going because I'm a Northern Italian. 
So, you know, <laughs> I love it. No, uh, you talk like I do. So this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> I tend to ramble. And I don't think it's rambling. It's just passionate speech. Like that's what you're doing. Exactly. And I'm super impressed by all of your background and degrees. I mean, just even a special education background is way more advanced than just general education because that's what I'm in. And I've seen the work um, of special education teachers. And, I mean, it's really, yes, it it's is. different. <laughs> and a lot of people don't realize that. So I think this is going to be an enlightening conversation to get more into the nitty gritty of the everyday work as we'll get into the next part. But I wanted to kind of touch on a couple of things. I as well played teacher in my basement, but I didn't have a lot of friends in this new neighborhood when we moved. So my teddy bears and my Barbie dolls were my students. I remember students. that from your book. I, I yes. love that because I could vividly remember us doing the same thing in our our uh, cabbage patch so dolls fun. were there. Yeah. And Oh, can't forget the Cabbage Patch Dolls. Oh my gosh, I feel like I had at least like five of them. Uh, <laughs> love the 80s, like reminiscing. Oh, And yes. um, so when I went to college, not the same switch, but I went into elementary ed in the beginning, not knowing all that it entails, like needing right. to be certified in so many subjects and grade levels. And then I did a switch because of a, a professor saying, or it might have been my advisor, saying like, do you have a specific area you're most passionate about? Because you seem like this is too much to do, but I feel like you do want to be a teacher. And I said, well, I like history. I like geography. I've always like been about learning about other cultures. And so that's what got me in the track of um, secondary education and then looking at the social sciences. Yeah. Uh, so that switched too, because of college and someone talking to you about that. And um, yeah, like, we had no background. We had like no, I don't even remember taking a class in even special education 101. It was weaved into some of the theory-based classes yeah. with just talking about 504s and IEPs. So we know what they are, but literally had no background in it. And my first full year teaching in Hawaii, I had a class that had like half the students <laughs> had some kind of 504 IEP. I had ESL students. And you had no idea. No idea. And I had 35 students in one class because that was, you know, public education, especially sure, at that time. Yeah. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing and I don't have a lot of support. Um, and I had like one resource teacher that worked with one kid because it was just mm -hmm. like a kid that was on the spectrum. And then yeah. I had an ESL teacher that supported like the highest needs kids for ESL that really right. didn't know the language. But yeah, I think I think at least where I went to school, I went to Westchester University of Pennsylvania. I think now their program, if you're in general education, you do get more of a robust special education of at least like a few classes because I think yeah. that has to be there. So at least there's some change in some of the programs, but it's a whole different thing. Like it's it's the needs that you need to be able to understand and even to support the special education teachers right. because you need right. to be in that. So, well, and, and just to touch on that, yes, I think places are starting to get more robust with those things. Speaking of Westchester, I'm doing a whole thing for Philadelphia Virtual Teaching Academy right now. And it's mm. teachers from all over the city that want to learn specifically about special education. So these are seasoned teachers that are saying, I don't know enough and I need to go yeah. back. And I can talk mm -hmm. about that more when we talk about um, what I'm doing now, but yeah, it, it, it's been eye-opening to me in 2023, wow. just how little people know about yeah. special education and about how to support these kids best. It's yeah. almost like they're scared 
And once, you know, you break it down, they're like, oh, I can do this. Yeah. yeah, So you're supporting them too. That's great. So you have so many different roles in how you're supporting um, parents, kids, now teachers. I love that. Um, Any stories that you want to share or just more of a lens into the classroom of like what you did early on in your profession? Because I think that'll kind of open up some eyes to, to what that world looks like. I think uh, there are way so, so many stories that I could share, but, um, you know, when I think back on my career, I, you know, started at 22, I was fresh out of college and I, I graduated, like officially finished student teaching the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And I started working that following Monday because teachers were wow. in such demand for special ed. When I went, I went in to do orientation to become a substitute. And the woman looked at me and she said, you're a special ed major. I said, yeah. And she said, you're going to have a job. Why are you even here? I said, well, just in case she's like, there is no, just in case you have a pulse, you'll have a job. And (laughs) lo and behold, the first job interview I had, I was offered the position. I took it and I, you know, jumped right in, but I didn't know what I was jumping into. And Mm. it was third through sixth grade resource. I was the only resource teacher for the building. And I had a lot of teachers that were on the verge of retirement. We'll word it that way. There's a lot of teacher turnover the first five years I was there. And it became the best working environment I ever worked in for sure. Hands down to this day, my favorite place that I worked Mm. because staff was so open-minded and we were all, we were all like family. I mean, we attended each other's weddings. I was more worried about introducing my principal to my boyfriend at the time than I was my father. You know, he just played that role in our world and he was such a role model. He, he emulated what I wanted to become as an Mm. educator um and lo and behold I followed him I I didn't plan to but my career ended up following him we worked together again in South Carolina several years later um but I think one of the the best stories from when I first first started teaching was um just working with a group of pretty low students and and one of them had fetal alcohol syndrome we had a full inclusion program where we were. So no matter what their academic level was, they were supposed to be in general education full-time. So I was with her quite a bit and she was sassy as could be. And she um, said to me one day, she everything was always like the world was going to end. And I would say, oh, well, the world's going to end, isn't it? She'd say, yes, it is. And One day I said it to her, she said, you know what? I'm tired of that. I'm just going to fire you. And I said, well, you can't fire me. Only Mrs. Rapp can fire me. That was the principal at the time. And with that, she walked in the door, like on cue almost. Oh my And Bobby's face, like her shock of how did that happen? She jumped up and ran over and she said, are you here to fire Miss Knorai? And the principal said, no, honey, I'm not here to fire Miss Knorai. I'm here to watch how you're doing with your schoolwork. She goes, oh, well, you need to fire her. Wow. Sassy. sassy oh my sassy gosh. Girl. And she ended up, I mean, just, she was that kid that I had her from the start of my career for my first three years. I cried when she left me. You know, she moved to, to California when she was in fifth grade and she and her mother, her mother and I cried together. And, um, 
it was an amazing relationship. But I think wow. about that child to this day and just that sass. Mm -hmm. It's always those ones too that push your buttons and that Ooh. maybe in the beginning feel like, oh, this is going to be the one that tests me. This is going to be the kid that I just don't want to come to work and deal with it. And then they end up being your favorite because totally. they're so real. They're just so real and honest. And because there's so much back and forth and like, helping and mentorship that in the end they end up being like your favorite and I had I had one I think I write about this in my book too in the part about Hawaii where I have like my journal entries about my pushback from students and I had this one um Samoan student this girl who hated oh, me I remember like, yeah hated me it um, reminded me so much of a child I worked with a few years ago. I could resonate so well with that. I was like, ooh, she just really doesn't like me. And I was like, I don't even know how I'm ever going to get her to like me. And then when we went through the series of like doing reflection things, she ended up being my favorite student even before she left when she came back and visited me and gave me a hug and I cried. And But like when I had her in eighth grade, because we did looping, so seventh grade, she tested me eighth grade, she kind of matured. My teaching changed, my relationship changed with students. And then she ended up being like my favorite. Cause I'm like, you're so real and honest. And like, you know what? I had to change. Like I had to change my demeanor because I came in, not like I had an attitude, but I was like, I'm from the mainland teacher. And they're recruiting all these teachers from like right. Pennsylvania right. and New York and New Jersey. Cause like we're top notch schools and certifications and yeah. I'm going to teach you kids. And she's like, no, you're not. Cause you don't even know who I am. <laughs> right. And you're not going like, to stick Ooh. around either. Yeah. Yeah. She that, like that knocked me off that, you know, pedestal. And I was like, Ooh, I needed it though. I needed I, it. I understand that happened to me. I worked in an alternative high school. Um, and it was a wake up call to me because I had gone back from a district level position. I moved states. So I went back in the classroom and it was same thing. There was this child from day one. I'm like, she hates me. She let me know how she felt about me on a regular basis. <laughs> and then at Christmas time, there was like a switch and I, there was a lot of detail that went into it, but she and I now keep in touch. She's 23. She's a security guard. She's doing amazing. Um, but she was that one kid in my class. I thought, I don't know how I'm going to get her across the stage. And not only did she graduate, the principal ended up selecting her and he hated her. He had her from elementary school and remembered her as such a behavior problem. And she was, she was a severe behavior problem. And I said to her, she said, what do I need to do? And I said, you need to stay off the radar. You know, just stay off the radar. You're walking out of class and you're in the halls and you're causing scenes. So people see you all the time, stop mm -hmm. doing it. And she was like, all right, well, can I just come here when I need to? And I was like, yeah, I didn't think you liked me, but you can come here. She goes, oh, I don't want to talk to you. I just want to come in here. I was like, okay. So that's what she did. I love it. That she did. And she, for six months, that child figured out her schedule. She got all her schoolwork done in advance and said to me in March, I'm done. I can pretty much sleep till graduation. And she was right. She pretty much had done everything she needed to do. But she ended up taking on such a mentoring role with my middle schoolers that were acting a fool and being like, y'all don't, I don't have time for this. Like, you don't realize how stupid you look. Like I did the same things <laughs> and really mentored and, and guided, you know, several yeah. of them. They called her Mama Shay. 
Um, and then the oh. principal at the end of the year said, you know, I need to select a student to read the pledge at graduation and I'm going to do it based on improvement with behavior referrals. And lo and behold, it was her. And I know it, it took everything in him to do it, but she did the pledge at graduation. And this is a child I didn't think would graduate. So oh, I love this story. Oh my God. And she lives about three miles from me still. So wow. she will take me out to lunch and she insists on paying and she's taken Brian and I out for our anniversary and oh my birthdays and stuff. She's, she's amazing. She's just turned into an amazing young woman. That is beautiful. And this is such talk a about trauma. Yeah. This is just, there's something about this profession where I, you know, I've been saying it more frequently, like it's such a human profession. Like you yes. are making an impact on such a deep level that like you have this really like intimate relationship still with her now as an adult today and she's like paying it forward ah uh, but like the beginning was such a challenge and you're like how am I going to do this but then it ends up being like the best thing I love absolutely that. and I wow. really thought this is gonna I'm this child is gonna test every part of my being and she did but I really thought there's no way I'm ever going to be able to build a relationship with her yeah. and so when when that happened it was I mean, it was, that was monumental for me as a teacher to realize, okay, I, I knew I could teach academically and I knew that I could work well with kids with disabilities, but severe, severe behavior disabilities had never been on my radar. Mm -hmm. And although I had been trained in it, I didn't have lots of hands-on experience, mm -hmm. especially with high school. I mean, this child could have beaten mm -hmm. me to death if she wanted to and, and yeah. had charges for hitting a teacher at one point. So, yeah. you know, it wasn't, you know, I didn't take lightly that she, you know, turned around and trusted me because yeah. I know how few people she trusted, you know, in yeah. her time. And I think this so. is much more than just your training. Um, there's an intuition you need to have of like how to yeah. actually speak at certain times to a child. Like the fact that, you know, you could talk to her in such a way that she could relate to you. And the I'm just like cracking up the fact that she's like, Oh, I'm not here to talk to you. I just need a place to go. Like you said, I need to not be on the radar. I'm like, oh my, I could like envision this conversation right now. And it sounds like something that would have happened at my school. <laughs> Why yep. you and that and girl she, didn't oh, like me. I'm telling you, she's who I could picture the whole time I was reading about that in your book. I'm like, that is so my Shay. That oh. is my Shay. Like she just, because it was an alternative <laughs> high school. So the doors did rotate. Teachers didn't stick around. She had always been in a behavior program, which rotates teachers frequently from burnout. Mm -hmm. So no one ever really committed to her. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, and the kids were open and honest with me that year about like, you're the only one that's ever liked us. And I was like, what do you mean? I'm the only one that's ever liked you. That's they were like, well, we know when our teacher likes us and, and teacher didn't like us. And they had Aww. had three teachers that year, you know, before wow. I got there. Yeah. Um, because teachers would come in and quit That's so you know, sad. because of the yeah. stuff they were dealing with. I know so. it's, and it's hard on both sides, but that is, it breaks my heart when a child says that, you know, because to them, a teacher oh, is yeah. more than a teacher. It is, it is like another parent, like another important adult in their life. And when they see them quitting on them, it's like a parent walking out. Like I can feel if that. I have said a, that. a dollar for every time I got called mom in the 23 <laughs> years I was in the classroom, I would make more than I made as a teacher. 
because they you're right they absolutely it's way more than just a teacher relationship especially within special education too yeah because a lot of times those kids you are with them for several years Mm -hmm. um but you know kids would always slip and say mom and oh I mean Miss Norai I'm like it's okay you know you can call me mom if you want school mom I had one that called me school mom um because he slipped so many times he was like I'm just gonna start calling you school mom and I was like okay so to this day he's in the uh training right now for I believe the marines and uh he just graduated this past June and I got a hey school mom just wanted to let you know I'm off to the marines message it's just it's so I love that yeah Yeah, in Hawaii like the endearment um instead of mom was auntie and so like even our security guard who was a female she was like auntie I forget her her name at this time but like um when I was leaving like school when I was leaving to come back to Pennsylvania like I got a lot of the the auntie at the end and the security guard's like you're a white lady and they're calling you auntie and that is special love it (laughs) I love it I know I was like I would have kids saying like do you want to come back to like visit my family and like, to, you know, um, you know, Tuvalu or like Samoa or right. wherever they're from? I'm like, yeah, cool. I'll travel the Pacific. Sure. Awesome. Oh my right. gosh. But it's you're so right. Sweet. It all goes back to those relationships. It and does. You build the yeah. relationship. Rita Pearson is one of my most favorite people ever because she gives her TED talk and says, students mm. don't learn from kids they don't like. And she is yes. so right. You know, yeah. if they don't like you, respect you you're not teaching them you can't teach they're them not anything. gonna learn from you. yeah you have to build the and relationship first it's hard to explain that to teachers and get them to understand that but you know I'm yeah. like you you don't have to really like every kid you teach but you gotta make them think you love them <laughs> you know you've gotta absolutely make them feel loved and secure and safe when they're with you right. and yeah they may not be your favorite kid but they can't know that Cause they right. do figure those things out as we learned by kids yeah. telling me nobody ever liked me before, you know, mm. it's, you know, it, it is the realism that a lot of times we are mom, you know, because mm-hmm. mom might be cracked out on drugs and not home or, you know, disappeared for days because she got picked up by the police, which mm. all were realistic stories to hear in the mornings from kids. Yeah. Um, you know, especially once I went into the special education behavioral end of things, the last five mm-hmm. or six years of my career, you know, that was, it was a traumatic time period for me as an educator. Mm-hmm. Um, And I'll, I'll say I tried to walk away two or three times, but you're right. It's in you. You can't. It is in you. And yeah. every time I tried to walk away, I got pulled back in somehow, even to the point that I knew when I left education just a year and a half ago. I knew I wasn't leaving education. I was leaving public education to work on education from outside the system. Yeah. yeah. And I didn't know how I was going to do role. it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know, you know, what my job would be or how it would play out, but I thought I can't make a difference doing what I'm doing from the inside. So I got to get out mm. and try and figure it out. And that's an important perspective. When we look at transitioning teachers, some do just leave and they're like done with education and Hey, whatever's in your soul, like it's up to you. It's your path. No one can take that away from you. But there's a lot, I think that are like you that leave because they're like my impact on the inside. It's not doing anything. And it's all it's doing is burning me out to the point where I don't even think I'm making an impact anymore on the inside. So I need to remove myself and be outside the system 
and look at it from another angle where you actually have probably a larger impact than if you just stayed inside. And so that kind of gets into like my next part, which kind of weaves both like the pandemic, you know, now that we're like some years out of it, but I see it as this like opening to the next phase of many people's lives. So if you want to kind of just talk about this transition of what really made you get out and then do what you're doing now. And then we'll just talk about what you're doing now. Okay. So um, like I said, there had been a few times I had been tested in terms of, you know, whether or not to stay in, in, in education, just due to burnout, because one thing um, I'm, I'm writing right now for a piece that'll be coming out in December um, to it's an anthology piece. And, and I talk in it about how all of a sudden I woke up at 36 years old and I was childless and unmarried because I had married my job and my kids, my students were my kids. Mm-hmm. And I had taken on all of my kids stuff and all my family's stuff for so many years. I neglected myself and didn't, all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, you know, I'm alone and and this is not going to work out well. You know, when I, you know, I wanted to have kids and have a family and all of a sudden I'm like, wait a minute, this is, it's not going to happen. Hmm. Um, and I don't regret the way that things happened. However, I want to be a voice to younger teachers of work-life balance. Do not, you know, let your classroom take over and, and, become everything because then you wake up one day like me and you realize you've got three or four friends at work and they're your closest other friends or parents you teach because you see them on the weekends when you go to your kids games or plays Mm -hmm. or you know ballets or whatever it is that they're performing in and you can't keep that pace up for you know every kid for every school year and maintain a healthy work-life balance Mm-hmm. So that, that's my first thing that I, I preach of, you know, that I realized that right before COVID really, it started like really settling in of, I am burning out and then COVID hit. Um, and at the time I was working in a district where I was a, a behavior specialist and I supported two different schools. I had a pre-K through five building. Um, and then I had a middle school building but the middle school had three self-contained special ed programs within the building. And so my caseload, although when you think about like some of my service was to go in and work with 15 kids at one time in a group, um, my caseload was 82. Hmm. And it was just a lot Oof, of kids. That is a lot of kids. And kids became mine when they tapped everything else out, um, <laughs> even special education. Like, I was going in into helping when the special ed placement even wasn't enough. Wow. And then I also was supporting general education for kids that weren't in programs yet. But the year that COVID hit that fall, we, for some odd reason, I don't know what was in the water that year for, mm-hmm. for parents, but I had seven kindergarten boys who I can't make this up were so violent and destructive that I literally ran from room to room all day long, triaging, slapping mm. band-aids, stopping problem, go to the next one. I had a concussion that year from a child. Oh my gosh. There were multiple other injuries I probably should have reported, but I didn't because it just wasn't worth the time. But mm. the amount that I had to physically restrain and seclude kids that year was 
traumatic to me. I, I, mm-hmm. my, my therapist has since said it's that secondary post-traumatic stress because I witnessed mm-hmm. so many things during those events and heard things from kids that you can't unsee or unhear after it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry. No. Yeah. Wow. But then COVID hit and I almost felt like that was an inner, you know, an intervention from God for myself because we weren't having to go to school. But that spring, I could only reach about 20, 20% of my caseload because my kids were the most difficult ones to get and find and get to show up to classes and stuff. And it just, I didn't feel like I was making a difference and it was so hard anyway. And all I could think is, I don't know how I'm going to go back. I was looking at 45 that summer and I was about to be 45. And I thought, I can't be restraining kids like this for 20 more years, No, but I know I'm going to be in my field for another 20 years because I don't have a retirement at 40 something. Mm -hmm. So I started then thinking about, okay, I've got to make some kind of change. Again, God opens up paths the way that things happen for a reason. The Mm -hmm. school right over the bridge from me in Wilmington, which is in a different district, um, created a title one position called behavior interventionist SEL coordinator. I thought, perfect. And I knew title one, I knew what that meant going in, that it was not going to be secure year to year. So there was a piece of me that liked that because Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't stuck, you know, in a situation that would be hard to leave, you know, if, you know, suddenly I didn't want to be there anymore. I had the, the out that if it wasn't funded anymore. So amidst COVID, I made the switch, changed districts. I don't know what I was thinking. So I started my school year in a new district, in a new school remotely. Mm. Um, and we were required in North Carolina. We had to be in the building. I don't know that teachers up North had to be in the school buildings physically, but we had we were, to were, yeah, the 2020 to 2021 school year, we had hybrid. So we were in the school building and children were socially distanced and we would rotate. Okay. So we were partially fully remote until maybe the end of October, but we still were required to be in the building, even though we were remote, we were required, teachers were required to be there teaching remotely all day long versus from our homes, which was fine, but COVID was still rampant. So people were passing it around and there was a lot of illness and being in a brand new position My job didn't have a lot of definition yet because they had never had it before. So I was duly certified special in general ed. And I think that my administration went, we've have, we have another teacher. This is another person that can help, you know, cover classes. So I did a lot of special ed teaching that year, which looking back on, I should have refused to do because my district pays more to special ed teachers. And I was not receiving that stipend. Mm. Um, but I was, I felt very taken advantage of that year mm-hmm. by a brand new staff that I didn't know well too. So I didn't have, feel like I had much voice to speak up. Um, you know, there was no support for the curriculum that I was supposed to be making teachers do. Um, I was told by one of my assistant principals, SEL is just not a priority right now. And I'm like, it's not a priority right now. I don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> During like the world shutting down, yeah, SEL right. is like, so right. for those listener, uh, listening, it's like social emotional learning is very yes. important. <laughs> it was like the most critical skill needed in the moment. Yes. Um, and so I made it through our first academic year. We were fully remote for part of it. And then we came back hybrid 
until April and then fully in person from April to June. And that year ended, it was a good year. I felt really good after the year ended. We had real definition once we were back in person of what my job was going to look like. And then COVID ramped up again and we had school continue, but nobody available teaching wise because so many teachers were out because they were ill or home in quarantine because they were exposed. You know, it was nothing on a staff of 50 for, you know, 30 to be out. And so it was all hands on deck covering classes. And that's all I did that Mm. year, Um, 21, 22 started out and I was so positive and I was the one putting positive notes in people's mailboxes. And Mm. I was like bleeding positivity, trying to keep everybody uplifted. And then I crashed and burned because I just, I couldn't do it anymore. And Mm. I hit a wall. And Jackie to this day, it creeps me out. Mm. It was December 2nd, 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, It was literally the day before what would have been the start of my 23rd year. I mean, to the day. I started December 3rd of 99. So it was just like, Mm. wow, this is, and I, I came home that day after subbing in sixth grade all day. And then going into a staff meeting and hearing that our kids weren't getting interventions with fidelity, which I was the interventionist. So it was mm-hmm. like a slap in the face publicly. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the whole staff knew I'd been in sixth grade all day, mm-hmm. but I, I came home and I said to Brian, I'm not going back. And I don't know if I'm ever going back. I'm not going tomorrow. And I don't know if I'm ever going to go back. And mm-hmm. he supported me. I stayed home for a few weeks. Um, I attempted to talk to my administrator and, uh, He didn't really have much understanding or um, belief in mental health. You know, he would say, I feel sorry for you. But then I could hear him through the walls making fun of people for taking mental health days. You know, so I knew he wasn't a supportive person in that respect. Um, So because of that, I decided to cover myself legally. And I went on part-time FMLA and worked with my doctors to try and get myself healthy again. Cause I was to the point that I was physically and mentally not healthy um, and put more time and effort into getting myself well for that six months. And in May, I was told my job was cut. Mm. And so I thought, this is, this is it. This is my sign. It's time mm-hmm. to go. Mm-hmm. And the, the goal or the real sign within that is not just that my job was cut. Cause I could have gotten a job as an educator. You know, of course there's still teachers needed everywhere. I could have gone back to the classroom, but they got rid of all of the curriculum for social emotional learning for the district. And I thought I can't teach in a place that doesn't support kids the way they should. Yeah. And that's when I decided job or no job, I'm resigning. And I resigned with nothing lined up. No mm-hmm. idea what I was going to do. And it was terrifying, mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. the best decision I ever made because I feel like I've made more of a difference in the last 18 months than I made the last 10 years of my career. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing so candidly and very vulnerable. Um, this is for people listening. Um, this has happened to many teachers around the country if not, you know, world, I've interviewed people from other countries that have gone through very similar experiences during COVID. I had nothing that extreme um, in my situation. And my heart just breaks because you're in a profession where it's about inspiration. It's about helping to mold the future, care and pour your heart out. Like you've talked about in these stories to these children that have so much 
they have so many needs and they have maybe families that aren't really helping them because maybe they got their own things going on. And then you get taken advantage of and broken to the point where you're in an unhealthy place where you can't even like put your foot in front of the other to the right. next Literally. Literally. And I've had <laughs> these conversations with some teachers that they had to just leave. And that's a very hard decision. This is not an easy decision. Oh, I went teachers. through so much mourning and talk about grief. Yeah. I'm yeah. still going you know, yeah. yeah. And like a lot of people in other industries, they can leave with two weeks notice any time of a year, but when it's like yeah. a school year, there's this, this sense of commitment of September to June or whenever your school year starts and ends. And if you're in the middle of it and you're having like a mental breakdown, it, it's really hard to make that decision to say like, I'm just not coming back. Um, but when you have to do it, you have to do it for yourself. And I feel like more people now are putting their health, their mental health and physical health first more than any other time period because of what we went through with COVID. And that social emotional learning should be in every single school as a prioritized curriculum, whether that is weaved within the curriculum in different subjects or as its own thing in like an advisory program. But it should be like the top priority over even subjects that we teach because we have to make sure children have coping mechanisms and know how to regulate their emotions, understand them, build healthy relationships with their peers, with their family, with their teachers, with everyone in their life. So that then when they leave school and they're really on their own, they have these strategies and mechanisms to be a healthy flourishing adult doesn't mean you're not going to go through hard things or fall on hard times and go through depression. But like, if we can equip these children with more so that when they get to an adult, we don't have the mental health crisis that we have. It's terrible. It's getting worse because the government's not talking about it. They're not prioritizing it. Our healthcare industry with funding doesn't prioritize it. Schools now not prioritizing it. And like, I have taken mental health days, but I still call them sick days. And there isn't anything mm-hmm. in our system that says mental health day, it just says right. sick day. And I love when everyone's like, it's like a mental health day. And I'm like, why can't we just say it for what it is? It's a, like, it is I mean, but that's the whole thing. Why can't we, we just say it? To. Yeah. It needs to be normalized. It needs yes. to be forced. You know, there are a lot of businesses and companies that are now mandating taking a wellness day, you know, every so many days or volunteer days, you know, things going out and helping the community. Yeah. You know, it's funny. We preach and preach and preach that everybody needs to help take care of themselves. And then teachers are the ones that are so micromanaged and so, you know, undermined in our ability to just do our job and mm-hmm. teach, um, you know, that it, it just, it, I won't go down that rabbit hole. I could go, I could go down a hole. Well, this path. is why we're having this conversation because one thing that at least, you know, I'm still within side the, the system, but one thing that at least I'm feeling like I can do now is through these conversations, bring the truth, expose yeah. what's going on in various places around the country and world, because I do have listeners who are outside of the industry who listen to this. And many have written to me going, I had no idea this is what was happening to teachers, Mm -hmm. which also then means it's happening to students. Like at the end of the day, we're not just talking about it's the teacher story, but really it's, we need to voice what's going on because we want to be there for the students. And if the students don't have healthy teachers, they're not getting what they need. 
Right. You know, it's all, right. it's all trickle down. Yep. So you can't pour from an empty cup. No, you can't. <laughs> so tell us about what you created um, with your inclusion advocates and allies and the work you've been doing since 2022. So yes, um, when I left the classroom, um, I made that decision that I was going to really focus on trying to find a job originally in social emotional learning. So I wanted to work for any social emotional learning company that would take me. And I didn't really have a focus on what I wanted to do there. And that was the issue. It was like, I knew what I, what I wanted to work within, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I can't, couldn't find a job I really liked, you know, and I found, unfortunately, a lot of those companies don't pay as well as teaching does, mm. and they are expecting you to work 12 months. So um, I was a finalist for several positions that I now look back on and go, God's hand was in that. I would have been miserable. You know, one was a sales position. And I, as much as, you know, I'm doing some sales stuff now, I'm not a sales person. You know, I'm not somebody to be on the road all the time and, you know, trying to make quotas and all that. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and, and some of the other jobs just weren't necessarily things I think I would have enjoyed. I would have gotten bored. It was within the company, but it wasn't really doing the work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I ended up getting um, through some networking on on LinkedIn, connected with Catapult Learning mm-hmm. back last November and was hired to be a national professional development specialist for them. And so when I started, that is a per diem job that I do. And so I I fell in love with it because I'm giving professional development to teachers and administrators, as well as going on campuses and coaching teachers with kids in the classroom. So I'm getting to spend time on campuses and in schools, but it's not full time. So I kept thinking, okay, well, what, I don't want to give this up. What else could I do? And I have always on the side helped family members and friends with kids you know, as they're going through the process for special education, or if their kid's struggling in school somehow, or if they're having problems behaviorally, they'll call me and I just help. And last spring, my friend Amanda called and said, I need your help. And I spent hours in IEP meetings with her throughout the spring. And she said to me, why aren't you doing this as a business? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't know. She said, do you have any idea how much money you could make? And I was like, well, I don't really care about that. She's like, but do you realize how much money you can make? (laughs) And I was like, okay. So I started doing research and I was appalled, absolutely appalled at what people are charging for advocacy. So I made the decision that I wanted to open an advocacy business, not to make that kind of money, but to charge less and Mm -hmm. hopefully help reach a bigger group of parents that normally may not be able to afford those kinds of services. Um, So Inclusion Advocates and Allies offers comprehensive services from the standpoint of I'll do file reviews, I'll, you know, do an observation or an interview with a student, I will attend IEP meetings or 504 meetings, I will sit and give recommendations to a parent, you know, it's really catered individually to whatever my individual client's needs are, or, you know, whatever the individual's client need is for their child. Currently, um, I'm working with like four individuals already, and I haven't even launched a website or anything yet. This is just word of mouth clients that have said, hey, I heard you're doing this. Yeah. Um, And it's a variety. I have a couple 504 and then um, one IEP and one that wants services and keeps getting denied told you don't need them. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to me. um, And it actually truly angers me how powerful 
I am in this with this title, um, you know, having this title special education advocate. I wrote a letter on behalf of one of my clients who had been asking for an IEP meeting since February of last their last school year. So February of this year, a calendar year, good six months. I wrote a letter in October and we were at the table six days later. And wow. not only were we at the table, but the EC director for the district was there. There were representatives from other departments of, of which we needed to discuss programming. And all I did was write a letter and sign it special education advocate. Hmm. I didn't do anything different than the mother had been doing. She'd been asking yeah. for the same thing. Yeah. And all, and I said, that's how we started the meeting. I said, you know, I really appreciate everybody taking their time and getting this together so quickly, but it really me for Mrs. Miller that this had to be this way because yeah. she shouldn't have to have me write a letter to get a meeting. Yes. So, you know, I understand totally schools are overworked. Pe mm -hmm. Teachers are overworked and I get it, but you can't neglect kids just because yes. you don't think you've got time for that. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, you got to make time. The law says you got to, you know, this, this child has an IEP. You have to be providing the services. It's not an option. You don't get to choose whether or not you implement these services. And so that's where my work is is coming in now, where I'm able to help parents remove the emotion in their requests and meetings and and things like that, but also know the language and the and the law. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, i I myself caught two districts now in lies, and they realize as they're doing it, I think that I realize what they're doing, where they've, you know, oh no, we don't have to do that. We don't have to test, you know, for that, that kind of thing. And I said, well, if the parent and the team makes that decision, you don't get to ultimately say no to the parent, you know, it needs mm -hmm. to be discussed. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, just that catching off guard of, oh yeah, you're right. Like, and just little things. Like you need to like, follow the law. There's a law for yeah, this. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I have a family member that, that qualified, but on paper, it could have gone either way. If I hadn't read over the paperwork, I guarantee you that school would not have given her an IEP. But mm -hmm. I wrote a letter saying, based on this data, it says X, Y, Z. And my family member had no idea you know, to say that in the meeting. Wow. Um, so it's it just, it saddens me that it takes mm -hmm. that. But, you know, at the same time, I want to help as many parents and kids advocate for themselves to get what they need, which yeah. is also crossover into the book that that Christine and I did together, which is yes. for advocating, you know, helping parents advocate for their students. Yeah. They need that almost liaison person because there's just so much on the schools feel like they're trying to do so much. And then that kids fall through the cracks and, yeah. you know, there's, we could do all the finger blaming, but at the end of the day, this is the system that's falling apart. Right. And we've talked about this. Mm -hmm. Like I even envision your role as an advocate down the road being much bigger than just the work you're doing with individual families, but you're actually bringing to light what is wrong with the system when it comes to helping to actually give um, aid to these families and the, and the students and that this is the law and that there could be schools across the country that are actually breaking the law and people don't know about it and it's just being swept under the rug. And so like part of your role is maybe also just bringing that out to the light of saying, this is For happening. Sure. This is not mm -hmm. okay. We could literally have these schools investigate it. And right. it has to change because I'm 
grateful that you have this uh, business and you have this role. But if you really think about it, like you said, it shouldn't have been like right. this, like that family should have had a meeting without an advocate, but these advocates Absolutely. are needed. So I could see you kind of leading this movement of just advocacy in general for special education and what needs to change within the system. The system is just too big and there's too many areas that are just not getting addressed or they're just not doing what they're supposed to. And Thanks. now things are bubbling to the surface. And I get it. They're understaffed. They're overworked. There's not enough people to do it all, but it doesn't change the law in it. And I know, I know there have been two different districts I've worked in, in two different states that I have worked directly with the, the special ed director for the district. And we have butted heads on cases and it's been budget-based because she, you know, in both cases where both of them were female. So both of them said to me, what do you think we should do for this child? So I told them what I thought we should do for the child. And both times I was told in a very politically correct way, that's not what the budget says. So this is what we're going to do instead. <laughs> and, you know, I said to one of them, well, that's not what this child needs. Yeah. You know, yeah. you asked me what they needed, not what your budget said. Yes, yeah, so it all goes and back to funding. I know I talk about this a lot, just with yeah. like teachers leaving because of teacher salaries. Like there's yeah. gotta be a better way to fund public education because Absolutely. it's so underfunded and it's just so inequitable across the country. Well, and, um, and throw in their mental health. I think mental health is a huge piece of that now too, that why don't we try and revamp all of that together? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it is underfunded, both areas. And then kids aren't getting help in school, the mental health support in school. I mean, I'll be very candid. I took online classes and I, you know, I did things to better myself, but I have no specific training in behavior. Mm -hmm. any different than any other special ed teacher just build really good relationships with kids and therefore can work well with kids. Mm -hmm. I think I'm very fortunate in that respect. I didn't take any specific course that taught me how to do something differently than, you know, the gen ed teacher down the hall. Mm -hmm. The difference is I think the way I approach kids and just, I'm here to listen, I'm here to help you. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do what I need to do and following through with what you tell them because yeah. that's huge. You know, mm -hmm. they know when you're just talking. Yes. Um, you know, so a lot of times stepping in as that interventionist, it was stepping in with those kids that were tired of trying to trust somebody. And mm. I had to try even harder to get, yeah. get and gain that trust. Um, and it almost became like my, that, that was my goal. My mission for the day was I'm going to make Shay like me today. Today's today, Shay is not gonna. Oh, Shay, me out. She's I feel like I smile know. Shay. At me. I know you're yes. gonna have to um send this episode when it airs to Shay. I, I would love will. to know the the feedback because oh, now I, can I feel the like dimples and the smile and all of it. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like I'm like getting to know this student who's now well, an adult. This is great. She's still such a mama. She'll say to me, "Yeah, have you heard from Riley? How's he doing?" Like two of them just graduated that were seventh graders when she was right, a right. senior. She's like, I, I just feel so old. I can't believe they're graduated. I'm like, you feel old girl. <laughs> I was around for all your graduations. <laughs> I love that. Well, as we wrap up here, anything else you want to share about your books, about the work you're doing, or, you know, 
in the future um, and then share some things about your contact information that I'll put in the show sure. notes. Sure. Um, I think the the big thing, if anybody is interested in the, um, the book that Christine and I did, it is the idea there is it's an interactive workbook for parents to be able to use and take back and forth to meetings with parents or, you know, with schools or doctors or, or specialists of any kind. But it's also very um, chronologically, you know, kind of laid out of this is what you should do first. And if that doesn't work, try this and, you know, and so on. We are also going to be turning that into a parent class that parents mm -hmm. can take. It's kind of like a tier two support system. So, um, you know, kind of like in our school system with our MTSS, where we have our level of supports, you know, tier one being our book, tier two, giving more support by having a class. And then tier three, they could purchase one-on-one -on -one services or one-on-two, I guess, you know, Christine and I would work with them with their child mm -hmm. individually. Um, so that's to come this spring. We're going to be um, doing a pilot class this spring. Um, hopefully, we're hoping to kick it off in February. Um, and then from there, you know, we'll be launching more of that. But I also have an anthology coming out next month that is a letter to my family, to my legacy. It's a part of, the, of several other amazing authors that are coming together to write letters to their legacy as well. Um, Christine is also a part I of that. Um, and I'm very excited for that. My family does not know I've participated in that. So they'll be receiving that as a Christmas gift. They don't know anything about it. So that's a very exciting feature. And then just uh, contact-wise, LinkedIn, um, I am trying very hard to build a voice on there for advocacy, both for special education, but also mental health, um, and and trying to get rid of that stigma and, and fight that stigma. I'm also on Facebook, um, both of them. I'm Kristen Lynn or I on both, you know, just to make it easier. Um, my book is on Amazon. It can, you can just pull it up by my name or it's bridging the educational gap um, and it will pop up right away. But that's about it. And I really thank you very much for having me on today. Thank you. Oh my gosh. You're doing so much. I'm very impressed. And um, having you and Christine on in the next season would be wonderful to then see what you're developing in the spring and how the rollout, and then we could just bring you both on to really just share all about that. Cause you've both come on to share your stories already. Cause my season four, I envision these layering of like the next level of where these educators are going and what they're doing. And then actually being able to share more of those resources. Cause I think there's a lot of families that will be wanting to contact you um, for that. That's wonderful. Wow. I am Such... working on a website. I know that's critical, but, but um, I am still working on that. I'm working on it too. It's like step forward into the next thing. So thank you so much for coming on the teacher's story. And I can't wait to have you back on with Christine in season four. Have a lovely day. Thank you for listening to The Teacher's Story. If you like this story, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also follow this podcast on YouTube and subscribe and leave a comment. All reviews help this podcast keep going and elevating teacher voices.